Thanks for checking out the Ascent Church podcast. Our mission is to reach, equip, and impact others exactly where they are as we rise to new life in Christ. We hope that this message encourages you. Now, here's Pastor Thomas Lane. We're going to dig in. Um, I just talked about giving briefly, and some of y'all thought that was the most offensive part of today. We're just getting started. All right? The dude talks about giving, and you're like, oh, here we go. At least the message will be kind of more chill. Now, last week was, is the Bible legit? This week, ready, asking for a friend, what's the deal with hell? There it is. Someone is my spirit animal. Right over here. That's how you feel. We have one honest person. Ooh. Okay. Because everybody knows, everyone has heard of hell. Everyone knows what the Bible says, something about hell. But what's funny, here's what I don't want to be. I don't want to, I don't want to be the kind of preacher where you come to church and you get one picture of faith and then you try to read the Bible by yourself and you're like, it keeps talking about hell. What is this about? Okay. That wouldn't be unfair. That, that would be an incomplete picture. So we're going to talk about it today because really though, what's the deal with hell? Isn't God a God of love? Isn't he all powerful? Isn't he all good? How can he be all good, all loving and all powerful, but still consign some people to hell? How, how, what, what's that like? We have this picture of people climbing up this like pit, this mountain saying, God, forgive me, I'm sorry. And God just like stepping on fingers saying, no, it's hell for you. And it's like, that's just not the picture, but that's what we feel. Those of us outside the church look at us and think some of us are weirdos. They think we're all about hell and everything's the devil. Do y'all remember the movie, The Water Boy? Do you? Yeah, someone, my spirit animal somewhere over here. Someone's just like, yes. Well, Bobby Boucher's mama thought everything was the devil. I didn't say devil. I said devil. Somebody say devil. She said, Bobby Boucher, little girls are the devil. Foosball's the devil. Ben Franklin is the devil. Everybody's the devil. That's how some of your friends view you going to church. They're like, that's what they think about me. They think I'm the devil. They think I'm going to hell. They, they think all this stuff. What does the Bible actually say about hell? A lot of us have never taken the time to think about it. We just have heard a rumor or saw a documentary or read an article online or saw some weird meme and we think we know it all. Let's dig in. Let's dig in, you memers out there. I see you. Let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father God, forgive us for looking to our theology and memes. Forgive us for having this little picture of what we think hell might be and not looking at the Bible, not looking at your word to see what it actually says. God, help us do that today. I ask you to give us an open mind. And if we're mad right now, if we're thinking, why on earth did I come to that church? I should have known if it was in a middle school, it would have been weird. If that's you today, I just ask you, God, God, I ask you to help us keep an open mind, maybe to learn something new and to gain a new perspective. God, we love you. We thank you and help us today in this difficult topic. In your son's name, amen. Oh boy. <laughs> We're gonna go to Luke chapter 16. You can follow in your Bible or your app or just look right up behind me, baby. It's all right here. Follow me. It said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every single day. This is the dude with like eight cars and they all have like a, like a little button start, you know what I'm saying? And they were all purple. Purple ride. He probably had a purple camel or two. Okay, purple was the color of royalty. He's saying, I'm fancy. He, this is the, he would have had, if he lived today, he would have had purple Yeezys. I looked up, they do have them. I would have got a picture up there, but it was too late when I thought of that reference. But this dude is rolling. It says he's very, very, very wealthy. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus. 
covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and looked at sores. We're given this perspective of Lazarus being down here, looking up. He's looking up at the rich man's table, looking at what he has. And you see, the rich man was someone who acted on life. He made decisions. He got to choose what he wore, what he did. He called a lot of shots. Lazarus, if you look at the phrase used around him, he was laid. He didn't want to be in the situation he was in. A lot of y'all, or you look at Lazarus, you're like, I can't relate to this dude. But I just wanted you to know, everyone here has been in a situation that you were put in, which you did not choose to be in. Right on. That could be a relationship with a family member or child that's broken. That could be the death of someone dear to you. You didn't want to be there. That could be a diagnosis that ruined your year or month or whatever when you found out. We've all been in a situation that, has, that we didn't choose necessarily, but we were laid into. You can relate to Lazarus. Now, some stuff, if we're honest, we got ourselves into trouble, all right? But I think sometimes that's a little easier because we know we're like, okay, that was my fault. But it's hard, y'all, when we look at the circumstances of life and say, look, I tried to do the best thing. I tried to work hard, but I still lost my job. I tried to save, but I'm still facing bankruptcy. I try to be the best husband or wife possible, but my spouse still left me. We've all been laid in positions that we don't want to be in. That's where Lazarus finds himself. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Somebody say gross. That's gross. When you hear dog, you think cute. You think labradoodle. Don't you lie to me. (laughs) The Bible doesn't say it wasn't a labradoodle. So in my little mind, it's Lazarus and his labradoodle. For the rest of this, that's how I'm gonna picture it. I'm gonna picture it. But you may be saying, that's a weird reference. Why is he talking about a dog? Well, dogs were not like cute little pets. Today, they're like members of the family. Back in the day, they were scavengers mangy little nasty things would roam around. The idea is this, he's in a low position. He's looking up at the rich man's table saying, man, I wish I had some, I wish I could have some of that. I wish I could get out of this situation. And not only that, the dog is above him. The dog is coming to him and licking him. So Lazarus is like the lowest of the lowest of the low right now. Even the scavengers look down on him. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want to challenge you with today. We hate the idea of a judge, right? Like we don't like that. We don't like the idea that God is a judge, that that he's this person that's a judge. That makes us uncomfortable. That makes us squirm. I would say if you brought that up to your average friend, especially if they don't go to church, do you believe God's a judge? It's just like, nah. See, we don't like to think of God as a judge. We like to think of God as a force. And you go like this. And he's just kind of this warm fuzzy and he helps me meet my goals. And if I'm struggling to pass that test, well, I pray and I get them. And when I'm out doing my yoga paddle boarding, oh, I feel him in the, in the waves. And I, I feel him when I'm doing goat yoga and I feel like his presence, I felt it. That's how we treat God. He's this impersonal force. I came to tell you, he's not a force. He's a person. And the idea of God as judge kind of makes us uncomfortable, but with all due respect, that may be because our lives are a little too like the rich man and not enough like Lazarus. Let me tell you why. There are people, I don't know if anyone here has been this, but if you were, imagine for a second, you were a woman and you were kidnapped and you were locked in sex slave trafficking. You were kidnapped, locked into a room and you were forced to have sex with five to eight strange men, different men every single day for 20 years. Imagine that for a second. And then you heard about the idea of God. Now, would you want that God to be a warm fuzzy force who makes you feel better? Or, do you want, or would you want your God to be a judge who is good, who is just, who promises to come and set everything right? What's going to get you to the next day? 
Oh, but he comforts me. He helps me meet my goals. Absolutely he does. But you need to understand he is not a genie in a bottle. He's not here for you. We are here for him. You got to understand that. You got to get that. You got to understand that. But he, he's a judge. Scripture portrays him as a judge. What's funny about our society is a lot of us would say, I don't believe, I don't believe that he's a judge. And I don't believe in sin. I, don't, you know, I think I choose what's right or wrong. It's on me. I have to do what's good or bad for me at this point. I don't believe there's a lawgiver. I don't believe there's right or wrong. I, I don't really believe in all that. But what's funny though, we think there's no sin. Therefore, we think there's no guilt, but we hate the idea of a judge. That doesn't line up. Because if we think we're innocent, we don't care about a judge. We shouldn't care. But I think it bothers us deep down because I think deep down we know something's wrong. I think we know deep down something's missing, something's off. And that's why deep down in our souls, we don't like the idea that he has the ability and the power to tell us right and wrong. <laughs> I think that's what it is. It just makes us uncomfortable sometimes. You ever be driving and like a cop is even in your vicinity and you just all of a sudden have really good posture? <laughs> and you're like, where are my hands go? And you put on K-Love. <laughs> just in case, just in case, Right. You were just scrolling on Facebook. Your phone is down. It's locked. Can't prove I was watching it. Okay. Okay. You ever had a, even, has that ever happened to you? Even worse, you ever had a cop like pull you over? Look in, did the cop look like this perhaps? It's a scary thing. <laughs> He's looking in. It's a stressful thing. Even if you haven't done anything, you're still like, what's he going to find? That's what we feel I think about church sometimes. Even if we say, no, nah, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in guilt. I think deep down we know it's true. When we hear that God's a judge, we recoil, we stress. But there are people who would have heard that and they would have felt liberation. They would have cheered. They would have had peace and hope because they would have known God is coming to set everything right. If someone stole something from you, if someone stole your car, if somebody stole your Labradoodle, let's just say. I know it's hard to imagine. If someone did that, and then you found out you were going to stand before a judge with that person. Would that make you scared or would you be like, finally? You'd be excited. You'd say, finally, justice is going to be served. I'm going to stand before a judge who's good, who has my best interest in mind, who loves me, who has a plan. You'll say, finally, justice. Finally, justice. There's people who've heard this message, not our culture, but there's people who've heard this and felt liberated. God is powerful. He is a judge. He does care. I came to tell you, we have all sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God, but you need to know sometimes it's our fault, sometimes it's not, but sin has stolen some things from us. Jesus said that the enemy came to steal and kill and destroy. Did you catch that first one? Steal. The enemy has stolen some things from you. Maybe he's stolen your hope. Maybe he's stolen some of your joy. Maybe he's stolen some joy out of your marriage. Maybe he's stolen some, some, some hope and that you're really struggling with that right now. Jesus said right after that, he said, I come that they may have life and have it to the full. Each and every one of us, don't miss this, has had something stolen from them. Jesus says, I'm coming to set everything right. That's what a good judge does. A good judge balances the scales. A good judge comes and brings justice. This should not be a terrifying thing to us. Except the tension you're going to see very soon is, wait, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. What does that mean for me? You'll see soon. You'll see soon. But I just want you to know the God of God as a judge, as a justice-filled person, should bring us hope. You see, if God isn't a judge, Hitler got away with it. Oh, he killed himself. Yeah, I mean, that does that really make it okay? Seriously, 
if God, if there's no God, Hitler got away with it. Stalin, what did Stalin kill? Like 20 million people? Stalin got away with it too. They do whatever they want. These tyrants do whatever they want. Scripture says that no one will get away with anything. No rape, no amount of racism, no amount of injustice. Every single thing will have to be held accountable to him. This should not scare you. This should liberate you. You'll see why in a minute. There's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf. He's a theologian. He's a professor. He grew up in the Balkans in Eastern Europe. And it was a, it was a literal war zone. He's seen some stuff. And he, he has some interesting ideas I'd like to share with you. This is a little heavy. I'm going to walk you through it. But the idea is this, that a lot of us think, this is a big argument against hell, and I understand it. The idea is this, that if you have a God who meets out justice, that you will be a harsh person, right? Like if you believe God send some people to hell, then you're going to be a rude person, a hard person. You're going to look down on people. You're going to condemn people. You're going to, you're going to kick people around. You're going to be a harsh person. Wolf says the opposite. He says the exact opposite is true. You'd think having this God who's a force and this just power would make us more loving, but he says, no, that forces you to take justice in your own hands. Look at this. Look at this. Here's his thesis. His thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you honestly want to live in a way where you can say, I'm gonna forgive my enemies. I'm gonna forgive my neighbor. I'm gonna turn the other cheek. I'm gonna get past that thing that that person did that ruined the first half of my life. For you really to do that, you have to have the idea that God is a judge who's gonna set everything right. Because if you don't, you're gonna be tempted to take matters into your own hands. Because we desire justice. We know rape isn't right. We know murder isn't okay. We know that. You don't have to read the Bible to know rape is not okay. You just know that. But God says, I'm coming to make everything right. To the person who's inclined to dismiss this idea, he says, look, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. He's saying, look, it's easy to think that, hey, let's all get along. God, God isn't a God of vengeance. He's not a God of justice. It's easy to think that in Roast Rider right? It's easy to think down on your couch or on your commute. He says, imagine you're at war. Imagine you're at war. Among your listeners, ready, are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground. Imagine that. Whose daughters and sisters have all been raped. Whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. He's saying, imagine violence is everywhere. Imagine you have had serious wrong done to you. What's going to make you stop from retaliating? What is the only thing that's going to stop you from picking up the sword, picking up a gun, picking up, uh, you know, some fire and destroying them back? What's the only thing? Oh, violence never solved anything. Is that going to do it? Is that going to do it? No. A friend of mine, he's a pastor. This is actually true. He had someone come to him. I don't know if the dude was a seal or a Marine. Either way, dude is a beast. Dude came to him and that, let's call him a seal. The seal's um, sister had been raped and the guy had been let go. And the seal came to my friend who's a pastor and said, I'm gonna go talk to the guy. I might hurt him. I'm afraid I'm gonna kill him. I need you, have about five, 10 minutes. I need you to talk me out of it. Now imagine you're that pastor for a second. What are you gonna say? Violence never solved anything. It would to him. 
because he craved justice. What is the one thing that you can say, that you can meditate on, that you can have as an anchor of your soul, which can keep you from getting sucked into the cycle of you did this to me, I'm gonna do that to you. You did that to my family, I'm gonna do this to your family. What's the one thing strong enough? It's the idea that God is gonna set everything right that God has a different perspective that you don't have. God knows things you don't know. He sees things you don't see. He has the ability fairly and justly to look at the scales and make sure everything is seen. The topic of this lecture, he says this, he said, look, it's a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis is this, we should not retaliate. Why? Because God is perfect, non-coercive love. You have to have a why. You gotta have a why. Now for us, it's probably not something that's serious. For us, it's probably someone gave you the finger. Right? They cut you off on the way to Ikea. <laughs> or that coworker gossiped about you. I don't care the scale of it. I don't care if it's little or big. The question is, do you feel like justice is yours to dish out? Do you? If you're constantly, I have to get the last word. If you're constantly, I'll show them. Then I think you feel like you're the judge, not him. Let's go back to the text, 22. The time came and the time comes for all of us. Just so you know, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Notice we don't see a burial for Lazarus. Died on the side of the road. I want you to know, no matter how you live, if you die on the side of the road with nothing, or if you die leaving a mansion to someone, no matter what happens, we're all on a crash course, a collision course with eternity. Could be tomorrow. It could be in 30 years. It could be, it could be tonight. We have no idea. What the story is trying to show us is, look, you can have it made. You can have an absolute hell life, but we all end up the same place. We all have to die. 23. In hell in Hades, where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. The tables have turned a little bit because when the story starts, Lazarus is by the side of the road looking up at the rich man. Now, what do we see? Jesus is a masterful storyteller, if you haven't noticed. Jesus says, now what happened? Now the rich man's down here looking up at Lazarus. He sees Abraham and Lazarus. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Notice how out of touch with reality this guy is. He still is treating Lazarus as his servant. He's saying, send, send, the, send the messenger boy. I'm thirsty. Get me a drink. Notice he doesn't ask to get out of hell. He just tries to get Lazarus in. That's what hell is. Our friend C.S. Lewis says, hell has to be a choice. And that the doors of hell, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. He never asked to get out. He never asked for anything. He just wants to still go on treating others as beneath him. Jesus is reversing some misconceptions that you might have that they definitely had in the day. Back in the day, they saw rich people as having it made. The idea was this. If you're rich, if you're wealthy, God has blessed you. Of course, you're going to heaven. If you're poor, if you're like Lazarus, if you have a dog, your only friend, okay, you're definitely going to hell. God's forgotten about you. Jesus is saying that's not necessarily the case. It's not necessarily the case. And also he's showing that this is not, because it's easy to see this. It's that, oh, rich people, you've already had it made. You've already got your reward. You're going to hell. Poor people, you're going to heaven because this dude is in heaven. His name's Abraham. Abraham was loaded. 
Somebody say loaded. He was loaded. He had a lot of camels. <laughs> you might not care, but that was a big deal in the day. See it as like Lamborghinis, okay? The dude was loaded. So we see a rich dude in heaven. So it's not that what is going on here. This is a confusing thing. When Jesus first told the story, people must have been shocked. I said, how is this possible? What exactly is this saying? But Abraham replied, he said, son, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony. The idea is that Christians will disdain or persecute people who they do not believe are going to heaven. That's not true. Abraham used the word, he says, son. The Greek word is technon, it's child. He's saying, my child. He's not saying idiot. He's not saying loser. He's not saying you blew it. He's not saying you should have known better. Remember that kid on The Simpsons that always says, ha, ha. Remember that kid? <laughs> He's super annoying. Ha, ha. Oh, it drives me nuts. Okay, that's what you'd expect Abraham to say. But he's not saying that. There's empathy. What was that kid's name? Anybody know? I'm gonna look it up. Somebody just Instagram me later. Okay, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here to us. So once again, the interesting thing, it's not rich, hell, poor heaven. That's not what it is. It's not rich versus poor. It's actually this. It's named versus not named. Jesus was a masterful storyteller. If you were to hear this, you would expect, because a name meant a lot, you would expect the rich man to have a name and the beggar by the side of the road not to be named, but the opposite is true. Lazarus is the one with the name, which means he's the one with the identity, with the name. You can identify him. The rich man was someone anonymous, which is so strange because everyone would have known his name. He would have been a staple in the community. He would have been at the church. He probably sat up front, probably wrote big checks. He was probably a very important gentleman. He was probably super involved. People loved him, respected him, but he was nameless. And he's in hell. What's going on here? You see, he had built his identity on something that he couldn't take with. He didn't build it on God. He didn't build it on something eternal. He built his identity on something here, something now, something he could touch, his wealth, his business, his, his, his influence. And when he died, he had nothing left. He didn't even have a name. He didn't even have an identity. Hell is this. Hell is a freely chosen identity based on something other than God going on forever. It's a freely chosen identity. It's something we all choose. It could be sex. It could be power. It could be your family. It could be your career. It could be your wealth. It could be your influence. It could be anything. We choose something and say, this is the most important thing to my life. This is what gives me worth. This is what gives me value. This is what makes it worth it. And we base our whole life on it. But when we die, let me ask you, is that thing gonna carry you into eternity? What's it gonna do? What's it gonna do? I wanna ask you, is your identity based on something eternal? We spend our lives building our identity on something. And when death comes, you finally see what you've been standing on. If it's money or power or looks, you have nothing to stand on. But I came to tell you, if you've built, you built your life on him, you have everything to stand on. You have the strongest and only strong foundation there is. Let's say, God bless you, you still hate the idea of hell. I still haven't convinced probably half of you. You're probably still thinking, I hate the idea of being separated from God eternally. That sounds weird. That sounds strange. Hell should bother you. It bothered me for years. You, you should feel weird about this, okay? If you feel compassion, imagine how God feels. If you feel mercy, imagine how he feels. Our friend C.S. Lewis said like this, okay? Fine, you don't like hell. Got it. What are you asking God to do then? Let's say you don't like, it. got it. What are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to give everyone an opportunity to have a fresh start? He does. Turn to him. 
pray to him. Go to him. He'll give everyone a fresh start. Just ask him. What are you asking God to do if you don't like the idea of hell? Are you asking God to just wipe out all past sins and forgive everyone? He will, if you ask him. Turn to him. The rich man didn't ask him. He was so self-focused, so focused on me, me, me. He didn't, he didn't think of it. He didn't get there. If you don't like the idea of hell, what are you asking God to do? Are you asking God to leave you alone? That's what hell is. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. The first group who says to God, your will be done. We found, we, we base our life on him, our identity on him. We, we looked at him, we said, God, your will be done. And there's another group who we spend our lives making our lives about me, 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 wealth, power, success. God will let you do it. And at the end of your life, God will look to you and say, no, your will be done. Hell must be a choice. If it's not a choice we make, if it's not a freely chosen identity, it wouldn't be hell. If Jesus says, if Jesus is who he says he is, just hear me on this. If Jesus is your creator, if he is the source of life, wouldn't you have to be connected to him for eternity to have life, to, to be able to, to continue? It's not a crazy thought. It just makes sense. If he is the creator and sustainer of your life, you'd have to have a relationship to him to live fully alive, to, to be carried into eternity. It just makes sense. Let's say you just got a brand new iPhone XR and you, you're feeling it. It's hot. Let's say you got it. Your old iPhone died in like six hours. This thing lasts for a few days. Let's say you get it and it's awesome and you love it and you're using it. And one day it just dies. Now, if you call Verizon and complain, they'll say, dummy, did you plug it in? Oh, I didn't think of that. That's what we have to do. It's not rude or unfair if the phone dies. It wasn't connected to its source. It wasn't connected to the thing that gave it life. It just happens. And the same happens to our souls if we are not connected to him. I can't think of anything more deserving of hell than kale. <laughs> so this is my illustration for today. It even smells like what I imagine hell would smell like. Lord, I hope y'all, can y'all smell it in the first row? I hope not. It's rough. I'm really struggling here. I hope y'all, y'all can pray for me. Okay, this kale was once, what was it? It was in the ground. It was, it was a plant. Okay, what happened? Its roots were severed. It was cut. Now, now it looks fine. It's green. You could, some of you weirdos might even eat it. it. Smells so bad. It smells like a rotting pumpkin. Okay. But the reality is eventually it's going to wither. Eventually it's going to die. If I took a kale plant, maybe I left the roots connected, but I covered it in a blanket. I covered it in darkness or I put it under a bucket, cut it off from all life, cut it off from all light. And it withered and died. I could get mad. It's, it's the circumstances. This requires something for life. And if you remove that, that's what happens. You require a relationship with God. And if you choose, get this out of here. If you choose, right, to ignore him, to disconnect from him, to not know him, you have that choice. But there are consequences. A Christless eternity. He answered this. He said, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, the rich man said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, look, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not even be convinced if someone rises from the dead. He's saying, look, fear of hell will never save you from it. Okay, preaching and fear of hell is not gonna do, it's not gonna do it. 
Because you say, where do I sign? What do I have to do to avoid hell? You don't want to know God. You don't want a relationship with him. You'd just be trying to get out of punishment. You'd be rigging God as a means to an end to get out of punishment. That's just more selfishness. You ever been to a concert or a show and some ding-dongs up there with a megaphone and a sign and he says, they're all going to hell. You ever seen that? I just want to smack them. I do. I want to ask, has that ever worked? Ever? Has anyone, have you ever been like, excuse me, I've got a lot of questions. Let's get coffee. Can we talk about it? This is some serious stuff. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's not how our hearts works. Abraham just said it. Preaching hell won't work. What we'll do it. It's the love of God. And how do we learn about that love from Moses and the prophets from the Bible? You see, God's sacrificial and redeeming love is the only power strong enough to rescue us from hell. It's the only thing. God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. God wants to know you, not just now, for it, but for eternity. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else. He did. Jesus talked about hell all the time. Why did Jesus Christ talk about hell more than anyone else? Because on the cross, he took it. He knew that was part of the plan. He knew he was coming to earth to die as our substitute. On the cross, he took it. You see a holy God and a sinful people, that's me, you, that's all of us. We just can't mix. Sin has to be dealt with. And God found a way to destroy sin without destroying his children whose hearts are utterly filled with sin. Let me say that again. God found a way to deal with sin, to eradicate sin, to erase sin, to pay the penalty of sin without destroying you and me whose hearts are filled with sin. It was the cross. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus's head. God's anger against sin poured out on Jesus's head instead of on me and instead of on you. Jesus took the hell that you deserve, that you would have gone through, that separation from God. He took that on the cross. He wasn't just hanging there. He wasn't just bleeding. He wasn't just suffering. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And for the first time in eternity and the last, the father and son were separated. They were ripped apart. Jesus got what we deserved. You see, Jesus took hell so you could have heaven. You see, Jesus experienced hell so you could experience heaven. Jesus willingly walked into hell so when you die, you can just walk into heaven. Do you understand that? He was thrust out of the presence of God so you could be welcomed into the presence of God. That's what he did. That's what he did. All we have to do is turn to him. Jesus paid the price. He's paid it. I'm not, this is not, you gotta be better. You gotta be good. You gotta be, you gotta do more good things than bad things. No, Jesus has paid the penalty. You just simply must repent. You must turn to him to have a relationship with him. That seals your eternity. Now, what, what should hell do? I got two quick things for us. What hell should do? Hell should make us humble. When you stop and realize how much God's done for you, that should make you that should make you praise him a little harder. You were expensive. Now, if you have a God who just loves everybody and welcomes everybody, what did it cost that God to love you? Nothing, he just loves everybody. But what if it cost your God everything to love you? It shows how much he cares. And it shows how much he was willing to do to bring you in. 
to bring you home. Hell should make you humble. It should make you praise him a little harder, a little louder with a few more tears. And also hell should make you hustle. That's why so many people serve at this church. That's why so many people give and serve and spread the word because they know time is of the essence. Lazarus and this rich man, when they, they woke up that day, they had no idea this was the last day. No idea. If God's calling you to give, give. If he's calling you to serve, fill out a card. The stakes are high. This is life and death. This is heaven and hell that we're dealing with. This is what I want to leave you with. Remember this, that Jesus walked into hell so you could walk into heaven. Meditate on that. Think on that. Praise him with that. Let's pray. Jesus is on the move in Virginia Beach. And if you would like to learn more about who we are and our mission, follow us at Ascent Church 757. If you would like to give to further our mission to impact the city and beyond, you can do so at our website, ascentchurch.net. We hope to see you soon.